Hey everybody, Eric Wright here, the host of the Disco Posse Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you're brand new to the show, welcome. If you're a repeat listener, then good golly, thank you very much for coming back. We've got Chris Garadini from Turnkey Technologies. This is going to be an amazing show, but before we jump in, it's made amazing because it's been supported by an incredible community of folks uh, like the folks over at Veeam Software. So I've got to make sure I give a shout out and tell you that everything you need for your data protection needs is coming out of the camp of Veeam. So you want to find out more, it's easy. All you got to do is go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Check it all out. You can back that SaaS up. You can back that cloud up. You can back that server up. Bare metal virtualization. Back it up. Guess what? Because that data goes away. Ransomware, just data lost, you name it. Get protected. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse and get yourself covered. They've got you. And on top of that, not just backup, but continuous data recovery and continuous business continuity and disaster recovery. That's the Vidro, baby. That's how you do it. You go to VMware's Disaster Recovery Orchestrator and you can fully orchestrate automated recovery. Holy heck, that's amazing. Go check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. Also, you want to start your day off right? First, back yourself up. Second, get a great cup of coffee. Go to diabolicalcoffee.com and you're going to get the most devilishly good coffee you can get in the industry. And on top of that, some diabolically awesome swag while you're at it. And not only are you getting great coffee that's fresh roasted when you order, but you get the best swag and you do good. That's right. Drink coffee, do good because actually proceeds from the profits go to a community event in order to make sure that we can bring people forward help give access to education and, and bring technologists further into the industry, whether they're newcomers or they need a little bump to get a little bit further. So we're really proud to be doing a really neat thing. Uh, so check out the website, go to diabolicalcoffee.com. You're gonna be able to find out more uh, and, and go there today. Now, the last thing I wanna give a shout out to because I've talked to people all the time and I'm lucky enough that I'm able to, to do well in being able to connect with people and having discussions and conversations. And so what I took was that skill and, and the techniques that have made me successful at doing that and learning from an incredible pool of people that are in the technical sales industry that I've, I've talked to over the years. And I took all those lessons and distilled them and put them into the super easy guide. It's called the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. The reason I did this is because I was tired of being on sales calls with different companies and listening to people do their pitches and they aren't connecting. So this will help you to connect. Number one, you get the ebook. Number two, you get the audiobook read by yours truly. Number three, you get access to a monthly Ask Me Anything open forum coaching webinar. Literally interactive every month. Normally, this is a, a, something that I invite people to. We, we buy it through Rapid Matter, but you can actually get it through the book. So go to velocityclosing.com and you can connect with me every month and you've got continuous access. It's a lot of fun and uh, I hope that you can learn a lot. We've had really, really great feedback from the book as well as from the coaching sessions. All right, let's get to the good stuff. This is Chris Garadini. Chris is the founder and uh, CEO of Turnkey Technologies. We talk a lot about Dynamics CRM, uh, the general idea of like Dynamics and, and what the value is and, and how he deals with, with business process and and more than anything, you know, we we just, we cover a lot of ground. If you're running a business, this is something that's worthwhile to listen to. And we get to ask a question that's a tough one to ask and it tells you about how to deal with perseverance. So we talk about culture, we talk about getting past 
real personal difficulties as a founder and how you build a business and a team that can survive that. So you got to check this out. Chris Garadini. Hi, this is Chris Garadini. I'm the CEO of Turnkey Technologies. Glad to be here today. And uh, this is brought to you by Disco Posse Podcasts. This is neat. Uh, when I was reading through your bio, Chris, and looking through your history and, and what you and the, the folks at Turnkey are doing, I was excited because it brought back good and challenging memories of, of living in the world of dynamics and, and ERP and CRMs and craziness. So uh, it was it's kind of cool. And I'm excited by the chance of, of talking with you on a, on a bunch of things today. Excellent. Uh, but for folks that are brand new to you, if you wouldn't mind, Chris, introducing yourself and then give you kind of a the quick little pitch on on what Turnkey is. Sure, thank you. So, Chris Garadini, uh, CEO. I'm the founder of Turnkey Technologies. I started this business back in 1994. So, you know, my background. I'm a technical guy, uh, electrical engineering, computer science, and math, and ended up in public accounting back in the 80s. So, the story is we married accounting and technology. Today, 27 years later, Turnkey is a Microsoft uh, Dynamics partner and licensing distributor. We focus on implementing um, business applications. That is ERP, which is enterprise resource planning. It's essentially financial software, operational software. And then the other complementary part is the customer relationship management. So really Dynamics 365 is the, is the core focus of the business. About 85% of it is, is the ERP solution. So love doing it, love solutioning. Yeah. I've. I, I worked in uh, finance. I've been in, in tech for a long time. And and when I started, uh, and I was in retail before that. So it was funny. I started to see you know dynamics show up here and there back in, in the day when it was brand new. And, and it was kind of funny that, you know, at the time, you know, there wasn't really, it was, ERP was generally new. There was a lot of POS systems. Then there were some backend systems. SAP was kind of a, a major player. And then Microsoft had this this Dynamics platform come out, and I thought, "Ooh, okay, this is neat," you know. And in fact, it was probably it's one of those sleeper hits because it's not a like people don't generally go, "You know what? I really need I really need a, an ERP system that's you know." <laughs> and I think Microsoft's my first like it's these are huge systems that are sold in a very different selling pattern and consumption pattern. Right. So the uh, yeah, and and your audience is different, right? It's not a typical like B two B type of sale. It's very much like people are saying, "Look, I've I've got a GL that I'm got to integrate with, or I've got to replace, or or whatnot." Right. It's so. How did you how did you get? I, obviously, it tends to start with, "Hey, I've got a consulting gig, and they need help with this thing," and then you say, "Hey, I'm particularly good at doing this thing. We should probably do it for a second customer." <laughs> sure, sure. So, so the way it began is uh, again. I I'm, I was a comp sci student, and I had a, a customer that I got connected with when uh, early, and they did. They needed software for orders and inventory and accounts receivable. And so, the very beginning, back in the '80s, is I actually bought Great Plain software from a, a, a gentleman, and I learned the accounting. But I think to that point is understanding business applications and and, and business process. I loved it. Again, I, my background was geared more towards scientific application development, but the business applications had a lot more 
tangible value to me. You delivered a, a, a very computable ROI, return on investment from, from improving business process automation. And so um, the diversity in the different businesses that I get to interact with has been rich over the years. I see what people do, how they do things, how they make their money, who's efficient at making money. And so, again, there's a passion today as we deliver these solutions and see people really realize the value and grow their businesses and scale efficiently. So um, so it's fun. It's pa I'm still passionate about it. And again, the solutioning, it's it's complex, it's challenging, um, but that's that's part of the reason we continue to want to do it. And accounting, accounting keeps a lot of the technical people out of our space too. It is a high discipline in understanding business process, but debits and credits and the accounting is, is certainly, um, it's not easy to, to endeavor into. So that's been the other thing that I really liked about the space and about 85% of the business is ERP these days. So it's a, it's a pretty tight space to get into. It becomes that neat thing of, you know, just like anything that they talk about, if you can find a niche and then you've got a, a strong, you know, addressable market in that niche, it's a fantastic place to live because, you know, anything in ERP, they're very, they're very unique. You know, they're basically a framework. It's not a product. It And you have to then map your processes to it, map it to your processes. It's when you talked about that, I think that like the business process analysis is something that most people just don't have the heart to kind of chase down and figure it out. And it's, it's very enlightening when you talk to customers and you say, Hey, we're going to build the system to map to what you do. What exactly. Do you do? And like actually unpacking the whole process. It's I I'm excited by that. I love doing automation work because Anything you do with process automation, it, it lets you kind of uncover the warts that are going on in, in the back office. <laughs> yeah, so one one thing to, to share, though, is we don't reinvent the wheel. And so with the Microsoft Dynamics 365 platform, these, these ERP systems basically have um, inherent business process management. So most organizations really need to adopt and, and adapt to those processes. And don't get me wrong, there's still gaps and they still want to customize it a little bit. But most people don't say, hey, build it the way I'm doing it. And we're saying, no, right. I'm sorry, there's a much more thoughtful approach here. Maybe you should look at how that's being done and adopt that without reinventing and then extend it to where it, it doesn't exactly meet the business. So there's a, a few different approaches, whereas you know, back in the early days, the 80s and 90s, a lot of a lot of it just didn't exist. And so you did have to build more. There was a lot more architecture from the ground up. But some people still want to go out and architect the whole thing. And that's that's not the most efficient approach to, to addressing <laughs> business processes. But in, you know. in the end, they probably build the, the system they could have bought. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to build a, a general ledger. Nobody wants to build a general ledger. Why would you do that? Most of the most of the focus is around it's the billing. It's integrating with an e-commerce. It's something that we do in manufacturing or in projects. So normally it's in those deep subledgers where personalization is required. But normally the core accounting functions are pretty generic and we don't need to focus on reinventing those. So and when we get into GL, like I remember the days of you know, hearing like every GL replacement or or integration project, they're huge, right? They're always they used to be these massive undertakings, but because of the way that software's you know taken a lot of that pain out, I think you know how have you seen the evolution of these kind of big projects over the course of you know the advancements in dynamics and 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 the better understanding that software should play more of a part in these processes. Well, it, it, again, there's simple and there's complex. And so some businesses are simple and their implementations are rather straightforward. But then there's organizations that do have pretty extreme complexity in the way they do business. And I think that's it, right? It's it's not a one size fits all. That's something that's nice is that you can scale up in the complexity. So to that point, there are small projects, but there's projects that last multiple years 
because of the complexity. And, and again, those customers do want to completely architect or customize some processes that may be unique to their industry. So they're still, like I said, we still get small, we still get large, but the, uh, as I said, that framework of, of out of the box business processes, there's so much there that you don't have to reinvent. And even in the Microsoft cloud, the governance is there. You don't have to deal with security. You don't have to deal with governments. You just have to implement it and configure it, but you don't have to certainly build it and architect those things. But, uh, and that way you're focused on just those key issues that uh, those exceptions, right? An exception-based yeah. management is a strategy as well. You don't want to touch everything. You don't want to fix everything. As they say, don't boil the ocean right? You don't need to boil the ocean, just focus on that, that particular aspect that needs to be addressed. The cloud and the governance thing is always interesting. And I remember the early days of anything in, in cloud, it was always the, there is this weird gut reaction of like, well, I don't want to put my data in the cloud because there's a risk. And you're like, you say to yourself, look, if Microsoft gets this wrong, they lose every customer. If you get this wrong, you're the only one that's going to pay the price. Do you want to own governance, security, like all of this stuff? I'd much rather lean into the billion, multi-billion and now trillion dollar company who will lose everything if they get it wrong once because <laughs> it makes the news. <laughs> no, it's so true. And, and again, to, to extend an application underneath that Microsoft cloud of governance, even if you start using Power Apps or Power BI, knowing that it's all umbrella as opposed to it's off to the side and all of a sudden we have nefarious people that can get access to that. So again, you're right. I, I don't want to be in that business. My company, most of everything's in the cloud for us. And so we don't we don't make that investment in having to deal with the governance. I think we focus on, again, the, the things that define our business. Um, so, As the world is becoming more aware of the value of data and the way that we can you know, get insight from it, I'm curious to talk about Power BI and, and more and more environments that I walk into, even in my own company, you know, where... I would never have thought that Power BI would be a thing that I'd bump into in my own business, but it's, you know, as we bring more and more data from disparate places, I'm seeing more and more really neat stuff that's going on in these companies where they're leveraging these tools and they're saying, yeah, I've got a Dynamics, I've got all these different products, I've got customer facing, I've got internal operations. I'm curious as well, Chris, like how much more are you seeing people really make use of data that they kind of already have well that's you know that's the secret um and that's actually a hidden gem in these projects as well and a lot of customers focus on it too late but there are more mature organizations that really do understand what their key performance indicators are in their metrics and they've composed them so that they can hit the refresh button and see them change daily so that's that's just an evolution of maturity because your point is right maybe the data's already been there but then as they start getting into it then they start focusing on gaps in the data, meaning, oh, I'm missing a dimension that would let me really look at revenue by customer type or by a product type. And so I think it's maturity. But, you know, to your point, there, there is a, an increased focus on that. And it's not just for internal consumption. It's for external consumption. How do I show my customer his data to improve his behavior? Or maybe I show my vendor his data so he knows his shipping performance is below average and he works to see his report card improve. So there's a lot of new techniques. And again, even through the mobile apps and through power apps to be able to disseminate that data to the frontline workers who need it. And I think that the timing of it, right? We expect now, expectations is a word I use is the expectation has changed. It should be real time, right? It should all be connected. I shouldn't have to wait 60 days. So expectations are driving um, you know, the delivery of tools that, that really start taking advantage of data that people have had all the time. you know. 
it, I often, you know, you look at the world and you you look at what influences and obviously there's business and process stuff. And, and you know, more and more when I hear these things and I have these conversations with people, I hear a lot of Eli Goldratt and the goal and sort of Toyota manufacturing, lean, all these things come in. But in the end, no matter what methodology you pick, it's generally wrapped around insight and data. And if you don't have a way to get that data and then begin to massage it into get a KPI, as you said. Yeah. I'm curious as well, you know, how, how do you help people surface a real KPI out of a sea of information, you know, data that's here. Cause we always say sure. we're, we're information, we're data rich, but information poor. Is <laughs> I think the, yeah. the phrase people always say. And, and normally it starts with, you know, where, where's the problem? Where's the unknown? And, you know, we'll use an example where we have a customer that, that does uh, extreme amounts of picking in their warehouse. And we had to create analytics that show the picks per minute by worker. Well, wow, that's that's some granular data. But what it surfaces up is, you know, performance in the warehouse. And, and there's a perfect example where I get to find out who's my weakest link in my warehouse. And again, benign assumptions, everybody performs, but there's somebody or something. And and I think it's to create that granularity. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that surfaces right out of the box. Microsoft's been very thoughtful about tools people need to manage your business. But again, to that point, this worker productivity one is a very micro look at how quickly are they picking boxes and getting them on the shelf. And when they found a worker, hey, well, this guy's got to go. He's 80% below everybody else, but he was hidden in the pack. But, but that's just one example of exposing an exception. And again, we want exception-based management. And I think as organizations try to scale without throwing labor at it, they're focusing on analytics to help them make those better decisions. So it's just maturity and evolution, in my opinion. So, Yeah. it's And it's funny when, when you think the way you say it actually makes sense. Quite often, we spend too much time looking for patterns when, in fact, we should look for the deviations. It's the exceptions that should be found that are probably f faster to discover and then from there we develop the pattern that it's outside of like it's a which is the which is the chicken and the egg when it comes to pattern versus exception well tolerances what are my tolerances variances and you're right and we lift where people are outside of that and then we got action we can click on them and have it do something so we didn't say that actionable information as well where i don't look at it and i have to go do something that's disconnected but i'm connected and to your point right lift the ones that float outside the tolerance the list gets shrinks as I'm doing work, but that's a, a perfect example of also driving worker productivity is we use the analytics to surface cues of work they should be doing, right? Instead of the, the traditional guy, my inbox is empty. I have nothing to do. Well, not in our world. Our world, it's continually <laughs> propagating workflow approvals. Hey, this item's out of stock. I need to, you know, again, all these different exceptions that need an action to go with them. So it's a whole different world where we connect intelligence to actions um, for the workers and then literally put it into uh, the digital inbox um, that we expect them to just perform through so if you think about the the way that i mean i, I remember as a kid i i was a i was a grocery packer you know and 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 you know do like nighttime duty you know stocking shelves and then every week you do an inventory and it was like literally paper inventories and they'd take that and somebody would aggregate it together and then they would go over the pick list and the order and, and it's like it, it wasn't that long ago that a lot of the world ran that way, which is probably why I think fee people still struggle sometimes with the feeling that software is taking my job. But meanwhile, what it's doing is it's it's keeping your business in business to keep your job, in my opinion.
But there's an expectation that people evolve as well, right? And your point is if you're static and everything moves forward and you don't move with it. But again, as you get more and better tools, you have to learn how to use those tools. If you try to stand and plant your feet, those are the people that fail out. And again, young, mid, old, everybody has to evolve. And I think that's what the technology and the tools, it's just that. It's just new tools. And again, you want to learn them, you learn them, you become more efficient. You know, that worker has 30% more capacity because he learned how to use the new tool. And I think that's expectations of, of management is just people just adopt. And adoption is a, is a big challenge in the business. Everybody says, oh, I'm not going to learn it or I'm not going to use it and they can't force me. And, you know, those are old heads and new heads are embrace, embellish, right? Yeah. Make it better, you know? And anyway, resistance is futile. <laughs> I think that's a, it, it is, it is. You either get on the train or you're left behind, frankly. That's, you know. You're, you've got an excitement level about, about these things, uh, Chris, that I think is helpful in being able to get other people to, you know, believe in you helping them with it. Yeah. How do you, how do you stay passionate, you know, and you know, how early on did you realize like this stuff is really neat to me? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting is, as I'm one of these personality types that, you know, I get bored and I tr think a traditional employment, it's like, ah, oh, boring, same thing, same day. My world is different every day. I get bored. It's like, oh, different customer, different complexity. But as you think about, you know, the tools that I have to bring to bear, it says, how do I teach people? How do I show them that it's not a daunting task, that there's an on-ramp, that it doesn't have to be big bang and there can be incremental gains and in implementation. And so, but, you know, for me to tell that story and and, and share enthusiasm and, and, and inspire people or create vision, I'm big on vision. Hey, we play that. We're from Missouri. You know, my show me, I want to show you. And, and it's all about creating vision where, People are in the box and they don't know what it's like on the other side. And, you know, we talk about bringing things in or going out and bringing things back. But vision is a great way to, to, to begin that understanding of what's possible. And again, a lot of people just haven't seen examples. And uh, but and I know I get excited about that. And, and I'm a lucky guy. I've got a I've got a, a wonderful team of people that work for me. I mean, quite brilliant people. So I think that keeps it fun. If I had to do it all by myself, I'd, I'd be tired of it. But you know, you still get tired, but again, it's just, it's fun. And, and like I said, that the people that we deal with, that's, that's the richness, you know, the business is great. They're productive, they're successful. But as you look at impacting individuals, both inside orgs and outside orgs, that's, I mean, you, you got to enjoy it. You know, what do you, you know, what are we doing in life, right? We're trying to make things better and uh, the continuous improvement, whether we're doing it internally here or externally, but that's, that's it. And, you know, and I, and I take care of myself. I go out and purge all the bad stuff by hiking in the woods so that I have capacity to absorb the things that aren't perfect. And uh, again, keep being positive, uh, looking forward. Right. So. Yeah. And when you started turnkey, what was your vision as you, you know, we were signed bail filling out that LLC, you know, you're doing incorporation and you're saying to yourself, I, this is what I want this to become. You know, and it's, it, it's, I told somebody that the 27 years later, I didn't know that it would get to this. I didn't don't think I saw this. And, you know, the story is I, I wrote some multi-currency software for a, an ERP back in the late eighties, early nineties. And I ended up spending five weeks on a Dutch Island, came back and quit my job. So really the catalyst to walk out the door was, was that, but being an accounting firm, I learned how to do business end to end. But, you know, the vision was in, in early, I was turnkey. I was hardware and software, right? Turnkey. We're going to have a fully integrated not going to have to fight. Oh, it's a hardware problem. It's a software problem. Remember that back in the uh, that's right in the, in the 80s and the 90s? Well, I'm like, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to be your one-stop technology shop. And 
And that was the vision. And I've I've pruned it a bit. We got out of the infrastructure side. We wanted to focus just on biz apps. But I think that, uh, you know, the focus and and I've stayed true. I've been doing the same thing. I mean, I'm I'm it's accounting software. If we go back to the terminology in the 80s, now we call it ERP. And everybody's like, what's ERP? I said, well, okay, yeah. it's more than just finance and accounting. It's operational. It can be service. It can be you get it. But uh, but anyway, the vision has stayed true. And, and again, I've kept it kept it focused on dynamics. And again, I started with dynamics in the mid eighties. So it's, it's pretty interesting that, um, but I, again, it, it was accidental to some degree. It was a, a survival instinct. And as I crawled into biz apps and accounting, I loved it. And I thought, okay, I have a math degree. So it's easy math, really. It's, um, but it, it really makes a lot of sense too. So anyway, stay yeah, pretty, I, pretty true to the course, frankly. So. Well, and I think that's really, it's, it's funny when we, when we look back and there, there's a beautiful combination of preparedness and, and, you know, accidental preparedness, you know, it, it's, you were always ready for being able to take it on. And then as you worked hard, this luck thing comes along. There's definitely luck. Like luck is a real thing that involves and in, in how we run a business and, you know, chain of events and, and customer, you know, acquisition, because we have every chance to lose a contract as much as we have to gain it. Right. Uh, but it is a, a very good pairing of having vision, being personally empowered and excited about executing that vision, and then building a team that can carry that same vision with you. When when you started on your own, you know, how did was it just you at the very beginning, Chris? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Me. I took out a second mortgage on my house and I moved in uh I had a customer who had a big warehouse and he gave me a little, a little room. It was like seven feet wide and 40 feet long. And that was my crib. And, uh, <laughs> and I moved in with him. He didn't charge me rent and I bartered some services, but yeah, I was alone for my first year and a half. And I mean, I did well. I mean, I, I did a half a million of business my first year out all by myself and I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And again, part of that is capitalizing. And do you have enough cash to turn around and, and make that first investment in a resource? But yeah, I, I ran solo a year and a half, but then I, I never looked back after that. And I started, pulling people in. And then that's why we eventually pruned off the hardware because we had 20 people doing hardware and two people doing biz apps. We're like, okay, wow, we yeah. want to do biz apps. And so we we got out of the hardware and people were confused about, well, are you hardware guys or software? I said, okay, we're going to be application guys. And that was a big difference. And that was mid nineties that I shifted and had a retail store. We're building boxes. You know, everybody's building PCs back in the day and we shut all that. And like I said, just got laser focused and uh, it allowed us to add resources and professionals because everybody had the same focus. And we ended up with a lot of accountants and CPAs. We had a lot of accountants, me coming out of an accounting firm. So it was very different for a, a technical technology firm to have accountants. But like I said, it was a, it was a very good way to, to drive the business growth for me. The arrival of cloud services and, and shared services and uh, it was ideal. You know, but you were, you'd already kind of laid the groundwork that like, I'm just going to be focused on the process and, and the software. And then at, while that was going on, all of a sudden the world kind of gets that cloud is, is a great place to host this stuff. So it really was good timing. But I think regardless of that, you know, you would have found success even if the, the cloud hadn't necessarily been the place that it would take off. Yeah, it's, it's the infrastructure thing. Is it on-premise? Is it cloud? And I think, I mean, there is a transition from on-premise applications to cloud because the revenue models changed. And there's a lot of partners that, that fall out there because you're used to getting big transactions. And now all of a sudden you're getting monthly recurring revenue and you're like, okay, so there's, there's a valley of death you have to cross there as you transition from the traditional on-prem 
licensing models to the subscription. We did that. We're way past that. But uh, anyway, it's just interesting to your point. And again, we've, we've always been not the IT partner. So now Microsoft's the big IT partner for most of the cloud. And you still deal with on-prem IT partners. And there's people that have in you know, Microsoft Cloud or Amazon Cloud or whatever, and they still have an IT partner per se. So we've always had this exterior relationship with the IT partners. Microsoft just gets easier um, to deal with on the infrastructure side because they, they're pretty quiet. They really aren't, you know, in the face, so to speak. The, the innovation in their platform too has probably been pretty fantastic, you know, beyond just like getting the data in there and, and being able to use it. But like, I can imagine there's all this, you know, lots of, of external services you can tie into. They've got AI and machine learning that you can tap into. Like how exciting is it to have watched just that platform and what you can do with this information now grow over the course of your career? Oh, it's, it, you're the kid in the candy store. I mean, I, you know, when I say that I'm, I'm blessed is, I mean, I get internal use rights for this stuff. So I get to consume this. I run my business on the 365 platform, the CRM and the, the finance and operations. And it, to your point, to watch the APIs and the, the artificial intelligence, and now they're letting insights read your ERP data and your sales data and your marketing data and say, hey, you should do this. And again, bots and, and the evolution, my guys have built bots and I'm like, brilliant. So yeah, it's the kid in the candy store and with power apps and all the toys, it is, it, again, it's an amazing platform. And so for us, it, just to that, you know, once a customer's there, they can increment, I need this, I need that, I need this, but it is, it's the, it's the kid in the candy store. And, but you're right, I've watched and we were, back in the eighties, you know, we carried luggables and we talked about dial-ups and bag phones and there wasn't an internet and, you know, now we don't drive to customers, we work remote. So it's been a, a beautiful evolution, but to your point, the apps of just the sophistication and the process has stayed core, but again, the surrounding uh, extensions and the experience is what we've watched. It's just been, it's been wonderful. And for the user community, for end users, it's, it's like I said, the functionality that they're delivering and, and the thoughtfulness, and they spend a fortune, they spent like $19 billion last year on R&D. So, um, but like I said, there's so much cool stuff, you can't play with it all. Even the AI, I'd love to jump over there and play with the AI because it's so, it's so neat. I mean, it really is. And where's it going to go from here? I can, I can only imagine. We talk about the things we see and what five years is going to bring. And we try to imagine uh, how quickly things will change. So, a lot more good stuff coming. That's the way we feel. And that's that's exciting. If it's a technologist, I'm sure you're, like I said, the kid in the candy store. So Yeah, it's every day I think this is the greatest day to be in tech. <laughs> like, it's not too bad, you know? It is. Uh, and, you know, obviously with like what we've gone through in the last, you know, 16 months almost at this point and or, you know, very much at least the last 12 months, we saw the world change so much in the world of business and the way we interact. And if we didn't have what we have as far as global ubiquitous access to software and cloud services and like remote access and high bandwidth connections, like this, this stuff has been, you know, it's it's been a terrible ordeal on the world, but it was less terrible than it could have been because if we didn't have these tools, like how could we have ever done it? In in eighty one, you there's, I I just it's unfathomable what what it, it would have been. It would have crashed right? to a degree that 
unrecoverable to some degree, but you're correct. A lot of companies like us, we didn't miss a beat. You know, we talked that we've always worked remote. We just came into the same building to do it. So for people to not show up in the building, everybody just showed up and logged in and did their work like they always did. So for, but you're right. If the platform, the foundation, the internet, the tools hadn't been there, there's a lot of businesses that would have really been compromised. And, but as a result, we've seen very rapid evolution and pivoting into collaboration platforms, right? So yeah. Very different on camera, right? A year ago, I wasn't on camera. My guys are like, "Hey, your camera's on." I'm like, "That's okay. We need to. We need to work, <laughs> yeah. we need to work the social here." And they're like, "I don't want to be seen." I'm like, "Okay, well, evolution, right? Evolution." So, one thing I've, because you've been in the business a long time, you went through a few waves of like the insourcing, outsourcing, offshoring. Like we saw a lot of changes in the way that businesses were comfortable in consuming things and the prices that they were willing to pay and where offshoring became very interesting to a lot of CFOs in the mid to late 80s and early 90s. And then in the late 90s and early 2000s, we saw a lot of onshoring like that. I saw a lot of repatriation of process management and, and development. So you've been running consultancy throughout many of those waves i'm curious chris like what how did you see your customers perceiving your value as you saw those waves of you know a lot of people are like hey look i can outsource this to wherever you know and it seemed like the right thing and then you know right now it's it's it was less popular we're seeing you know some stuff come up and but being a north american company and being able to say, you know, employ and service. Yeah, I'm just, I, I'd love to hear how it's gone for you and your opinion of it. Sure. And, you know, and, and even today, and, and as your point back then, offshoring, you know, why are we doing that? We're looking for lower cost labor markets. And I think even today we use some resources that are offshore for development services, but okay. it's narrow. And my team is all based in the U.S. and my project managers and even the business analysts and the people that would write specifications that would go over to maybe in India. And we've got nearshore down Costa Rica, for example. But I think that the, the models change. There's still things that you can send over there. And it's been Typically, as we see big projects, I've got a group that's doing 6,000 hours of development, and that made sense to send it over there. But there's a huge team of people, U.S.-based, you know, profound language and articulation skills that are writing the specifications, interacting with the customers. And I think that, you know, in that model that you can successfully use offshore, and there's certainly other parts of the business that can move over there that are going to be cost effective, that there's not going to be any degradation in service by using those type of team members. But some of the challenges where people that I can just throw it over there. Well, you know, you need layers. You need a layer over the resource offshore and you need a layer here. And so there is an overhead model that has to be in place to support effective use of those resources. That that being in place, no problems. But I think the CFO, goes, well, I'm going to get an offshore guy. Is he managing him? Like I said, there's an inefficiency yeah. that comes with that if the CFO's there, but CFO, hey, I've got a I got a CIO. Oh, why I have a dev manager. My dev manager is managing the offshore guy, and you've got layers in there. But like I said, to, to have the CFO just reaching in for one guy or a firm, there's still some missing components in there, is what we found. And that was really where we had the challenges years ago. Language, time zones, right? Hey, you need I need a PM here, I need a PM here. Otherwise, so right, you know, no those proxy. mechanisms in place, you can get efficiency, but again, between language and time zones, like I said, um, those sometimes present challenges. I have nearshore teams and I have bilinguals on my team to deal with that. And it works very, very well for us. But again, a very small part of our business is, is actually outsourced outside the U.S. at this point. So, 
There's definitely a, uh, yeah, and, and I remember at one point, Ireland became like the hot spot for like, they did a lot of real tax advantages and they built a ton of call Still centers. Are. There's like this one, I forget this one region in Ireland and it had like the most bandwidth coming into it because there was all these call centers that, and service centers that were being put up there. And I, I at the time, I actually worked at Sun Life Financial. You know, I could say that because people just go on my LinkedIn, they can figure out where it is. But, you know, anybody that called in would know, they hear this beautiful Irish, you know, this sort of Gaelic hint <laughs> on, the, on the voice as they're, as they're calling in for things. And what was fantastic was Sun Life was a, uh, in Canada, you're bound to everything in full, fully bilingual. And in fact, it was French first because they were actually originally a, a Montreal, like a Quebec-based company. And so they are very strong. So you'd hear this, this incredible French with this uh, a lovely Irish <laughs> brogue over top of it. It was kind of funny. Um, but, you know, it was truly the language had to map. And that's why yeah, certain functions are not as efficient or it's hard. I don't want to say customer friendly, but like it's there is a, a challenge in that proxy of, of language. And there's some people U.S. based that don't want to have to try to interpret. I've had people that were, I don't understand. I'm like, okay, be a little bit more open on interpretational language. And I think that goes back to the personality type that we're dealing with. Some people are going to be fine with that. And, you know, everybody's got an accent versus you get it. And that's also another one of those inhibitors from some organizations. But that's where those layers of, do I have a BA? Is he dealing with them? Is there a little bit of buffering going on there? And, and Microsoft does have a data center in Ireland. And Ireland, you know, there's some interesting things over there. I had a, a big company here. I don't know names, names, but I'm like, oh, you got an Irish subsidiary? I go, what do you do there? Oh, we sell to them and then they sell to us. And I go, do you? Do you move product? No, it's just paper. I'm like, okay, that's some tax stuff. There's absolutely some tax <laughs> stuff there. As you're looking, why do I route that through there? And I don't actually move any product over there or anything like that. But uh, very interesting. So, yeah, that's uh, it's always, you know, even when you see like shipping and logistics companies, and I li lived in Vancouver for a, a long time, and I would like talk to people at different companies in mining and logging. And the weird thing was how much stuff they had to do purely for tax purposes. They're like, we literally drive trees around like from one side of the city to the other all day long because we don't pay taxes when it's rolling. <laughs> but so if, you know, and so I would, and I used to laugh. I would say you'd go on the sea to sky highway from Vancouver to Whistler. And you'd see a big logging truck go one way and then a big logging truck go the other way. And all I would think in my logistics brain is, why didn't they just not drive the opposite direction, just unload yeah, the yeah, truck yeah, on yeah. either side? <laughs> Doesn't seem like it makes sense, but uh, it's it's all yeah. bloody taxes. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Now, one thing I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna put you on an interesting spot because I, I read it in, in your bio and, and talked about some of the questions. And, and the question came up and says, how does cancer change the culture at turnkey Ooh, yeah yeah we we didn't talk about it at the start if you don't mind i'd i'd I actually like to explore that it's a it's an interesting you know this is that january of 2018 i'm like what do you mean i have cancer i'm like uh i don't feel sick so that was uh you know organizationally it scared everybody as you can imagine and uh scared my kids my family and uh you know i mean i i went february of 2018 i went and had a nine-hour surgery where they I found a, I found a tumor in my neck and I had ear pain. And of course I persisted and got it. And then they said, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, so, but a lot of surgery and then a uh, little break in between. And then I did the six weeks of radiation. And I'll tell you, that is a, that's a day by day struggle. And my team, my team really you talk about 
the ins- inspiration and the motivation. And when they kind of rally behind you and they're like, we got this, it's, uh, it's impactful. And so, you know, and I don't, I don't hang it out there. I've got new people that showed up that don't necessarily know that I had somebody told me I should write that story because, but the organizational, um, just, just gathering around me and supporting me was just, um, it was, it was huge. I mean, I was, you're checked out. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't recommend radiation to anybody. I did six weeks of it. It's a nightmare. And what you have to eat and drink to get yourself through it, uh, you can't function. I mean, that's the best way to put it, but they have an organizational support. you like that. And it was 40, 50 people in here that they're family. I mean, and we look at it today like that. The people that are in here, they're family, they're extended family. We're very careful about who comes in, but again, we support each other. And I think that even philosophically, as I pivoted past that, changed my benefits, I pay for short-term disability, I pay for long-term disability. And I said, you need this and you know, stuff shows up and I don't ever want. And so even supporting people that go through their own personal challenges, we're, we're a little bit different because you know, you got a guy like me that says, Hey, whatever it takes. And, uh, yeah. and so that's changed. So my approach to benefits, to the people, to making sure they have balance, I stick my, Hey, take some time off, go do that, do the right thing. And, but it's changed me. And how I look at things, it's changed the people. And again, as they, and many, many are, are here from before and through this, and they've watched the research. And so again, as, as we got the business, got as I got my legs back under me, yeah, I mean, just the support. And they're like, he's back. He's back. He, boy, he's really back. And so for them to hear me speak and, and be back to my energy level, I don't have my same weight. I stayed skinny. But otherwise, yeah. it is. It's, it is a... It's it's a pivot point in life. I mean, it changes you. I don't know how I don't know how I can't. I mean, you don't I don't obsess on it. I think I'm still on that Caribbean island. I tell people I went on vacation for six months because mentally that's a good place to think about as opposed to horrors of being, you know, radiated every day for six weeks. But uh anyway, yeah. it's an interesting yeah. it, it is. So it's gotta be, you know, and and I'm thankful that you're, you know, on this side of it. And, and it's, I'm good. it's, a, Absolutely. it's a journey. No one deserves to have to take. Yeah, I would really, agree. I would agree. So your, your personal positivity and vision is probably what infuses every day in, in building the company. And that allowed you to, you know, you create the team that you want to be on. And that allowed you to, when you needed to say, Hey, look, I need to step back. I need to deal with this. You know, it, you, you basically hired a bunch of yous <laughs> to, to be turnkey and, and it, it, you it know, yeah, shows itself out that way. Right. It, it, it does. Only, only in, this is the only thing I would say, like, even like with marriage, with everything, when it's easy, it's easy. When you really test relationships and trust is when it's difficult and, and there's nothing more difficult than watching a you know a leader have to step away and you know really trust that the ship is going to keep row keep going and like someone else yeah, is going to yeah, take yeah. the wheel we grew in 2018 i'm like hey all right thank you you know i'm like is that a little so thanks guys i mean they kicked ass they really did i mean and so there's there's kudos to that but to your point about picking people that you want to be around life is short you you spend time with your workers your mattress and your car right have a good car have a good mattress and have good people to surround you because and i think to your point yes it is imperative that you're surrounded by people you like and that you like working with and that you have common values and you love the challenges and and yeah. And it all shines when somebody has a rough patch. Hey, you support them. And I think that's the that's the overall philosophy that we have in this organization. And uh, and it shines through. So. But, yeah, thanks for asking that. It's uh, interesting. I wish we had more, you know, people that would get 
the the hard part is when you live through it like the lived experience can fundamentally change how you approach things and you know i don't i don't doubt it really changed a lot of things you talked about like your healthcare review and and stuff but i think you know your luckily your personal vision was always always there but i i often tell people like look i work in a startup too and and i see this thing all the time where you're like Look, there's no one's going to say, hey, you know what, Eric, you should take a few days off. <laughs> no one will ever say that. In fact, if you ask for a few days off, they're like, hey, can you wait till after product launch? And we've got this thing coming up. And like there's it's a constantly rolling machine. But what I've really appreciated about my team is if I just say, hey, you know, family sick or whatever, it's immediate. It's just like we got you. What do you need? What do we what can we help with? And it is I. I I I was telling somebody yesterday. I said I wish that we could all have like, you should just have a thing where you can have it. It's just like a mulligan where you, you know you can just say, "Look, I'm taking my week," and just like out of the blue, just like shut it off. Because check out, yeah, yep. you gotta check out. And and I think people don't always know when they need to. So you got to have good good meters on people and just, and again, they sometimes need a nudge to go do it. And people guilt themselves out of doing stuff that they need to do. And I think that's a different problem in life. And post-cancer, I don't, I don't guilt about stuff. I rationalize whether I should do things, but you know, and I tell my wife thinks I don't say no to myself enough, but to that point, people do guilt themselves out of that. And, you know, to take a step back and not to be, you know, ridiculed or, or, you know, deprecated because of that. I think it's, it's completely, and to have the support of your team, I think that's even more important is to feel comfortable. That's when you really find a home when you know that, Hey, I'm, I'm okay. I can have some transparency. I can tell people what's wrong and I'm not going to be judged. Um, you know, right. So. Yeah. It's the, the tough part is that you just, you, I wish we could have that experience without having to live through the experience. Like I wish we wouldn't have to have the <laughs> negative to, yeah, to yeah. give us that understanding yeah. of it. So yeah. It's, now, Again, when you when you run a business and you have people that you effectively are taking responsibility for, like as you bring new team members on, what do you look for, Chris, when you're when you're bringing someone on board? You know, it's it's a great question, and we've done a lot of recent hiring. We brought in new um, director level positions, but part of it is culture. You know, how well do you fit? I mean, certainly, you know, we want we want to look at the holistic person, and I'm not round peg round hole, so. Uh, but the culture piece is important. We see a lot of our workers from, you know, Minnesota all the way down to Texas, a huge belt. We've got people on the East and West Coast, but certainly geography can speak to culture. You know, what's your, but uh, the talent, you know, the transparency and again, the experiences. But um, a, a lot of it is, again, we want the people. We want the, they have the academic, they have the experience, they've got the culture to come in, join, and then to grow in the organization because it's just that. It's like, hey, you show up today, you can do these 10 things. Great. In, in three months or six months, you're going to be able to do 15 to 17. And so there's an evolution and an expectation that people want to come in and grow and learn. And and they look at our organization, we're growing. And and so it's exciting for them. And uh, like I said, we get those matches. Normally, it's it's a good win. And uh, we've been very successful at, at attracting and, and retaining people with um, very similar values and cultural um, opinions. And, and again, ambition for the business. So yeah, well, and that's really what it is. You want you want to excite them about their ability to impact lives and businesses and customers and themselves and their teammates. Like when they have a feeling of really being able to have a meaningful impact, I think that feeds that's a feedback loop to like, I I did a good thing today. I want to do that tomorrow and next week. Like it's giving them that ability to really see where what they do has a real result. 
whether it's, you know, like I said, on, on their peer group internally or, and especially, you know, on the customer side, it's, it's, it's amazing to be able to do that versus like the sort of massive machine organizations where you just come in like Kerchunk, all right, put in my, my time card. And, and it feels like that some days where you're just kind of grinding it out and going, checking it off like a jail calendar. Yep. In year 22, you know, only four years to go when I make my numbers. <laughs> you know, in, in valid point, and I'm in a, a CEO executive group and the focus even last week's session, it's all about humans. It's all about people. You know, the, the joke is that it's lady's book. Uh, I built a team and humans showed up. And then, but you get into the, <laughs> and again, what you're talking about is consideration, which people need to be recognized. They need to feel valued and they need to see the outcomes of their efforts so they can feel value and they're like hey satisfaction and i and you know and, and that's all part of managing people but there is a lot more focus on that post covid as you look at okay and they are the they are the crux of all businesses is the people and so if you know we're not machines and but to your point techniques and culture and alignment and and how do they feel satisfied and that they're being paid attention to as opposed to well, I'm number 137,003 yeah. nobody knows who i am and that's and they don't even know if I don't show up for work. I mean, that's a terrible situation to be in. So you want to know that, oh, they know if I'm not here, I'm not here five minutes and they miss me. Well, is that a good thing? Well, you know, it could be both, right? Yeah. Well, and, and even like, especially as you do, do the first hires, the the thing that I've often heard, and it's uh, the, the best way I heard it described, which has probably been used repeatedly, was Diane Green, who she actually founded a company called VMware. And, you know, a little company called VMware. You a know, little company. <laughs> yeah. But... You know, she was told by her mentor, you know, be careful with the first hire because the first 10 will hire the next 100. And so you have to make sure that that culture and your values are infused in that <clears> core <throat> group so that when you're in, you're giving over the responsibility of hiring and building the rest of the team to those people, because you can't directly affect like you, you can obviously you're part of bringing those people on board, but at 80, 90, 100, 150, we agree. We agree. Right? it's cultural imprinting and validation. Again, you, you're right. You're relying on the team to vet people and to, to find that alignment. And even some of that, I need to be more formal about the core values of the company. So everybody sees them and they go, oh, okay, that guy, oh, no, they don't, they don't align there. And even to get better guidelines for, you know, what is the, what is the basis to, to measure those people on fit and so forth. And you're right, it's not me. And as I get further and further away, it's like, I have to trust those people. Normally someone shows up and says, we decided on this person, can we hire them? And I'm like, okay, we have a casual chat. I'm like, all right, we're good. Yeah. yeah, it's gotten, and again, we're at 60. I see us getting to a hundred people at some point here in the next few years, but uh, you're right, I'm not gonna hire them all. Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> I don't right. have, to manage, <laughs> have to manage them all either. Thank God, no, I'm laughing about it, but uh, it's, uh, well, it's an issue. And again, sort of a forcing function, when you had to step away, what were you surprised by when you got back? You, you know, I, like I said, they, they, they fulfilled my belief. They really did rise to the occasion. I mean, it's just that simple. And they were like, we got this. And they did. And they performed well. And they worked well as a team. And I'll tell you, there was less drama during that period than there was after. You know, people are, oh, you know, they're oh, Chris is better. We could go back to our roughhousing but no it was just that that they really did come together and i think that i i, I don't think that i was worried about it but again it, the performance was really they punctuated it with uh with business performance so certainly the revenues were there the profitability was there again the team did well they delivered on projects like i said i saw greens across most of the metrics that we're using without my direct involvement so it was all positives like i said well, they say that culture is how they behave when you're not there. 
And yes, yes, yes. You, you've, you've done well, sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's still more work. And as you grow it, like I said, there's people that have been here a long time that they're like, man, eh, I don't like where we're going. And, you know, and that's always, and then there's, you know, like I said, but it's not a big departure from where we've been tracking for the past 20 plus years or so. But, and that's the other thing that's always tough to explain to people. Like it's, it's very natural. I mean, it's like a, I call it, it's like a rocket, you know, like there are stages of the rocket, which at some, at certain elevations and altitudes, they exactly shed right. the stage of the rocket. It's, and, and there's, I, I didn't appreciate it as much until I was in a startup and I realized that I work with people like these people are fantastic at what they're doing. And then we would hit a certain milestone of, of revenue and then they're like, all right, I'm out. You know, like they just like, I know how to do one to 20 million. That that was like, that's their sweet spot. And you look across the LinkedIn history and you're like, oh, wow, they do this build phase very well. And then once it gets to that point, they're like, too big company for me or whatever. Like they, 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 <laughs> so good, it's, good it is normal, right? And, and yeah, I, yeah. there's nothing wrong. In fact, one of the best things you can do is let somebody go on to a thing that's more appropriate for them rather than Agreed. Agreed. hold on to them. Talk about that. People get in the wrong roles. They don't have all the skills and traits to perform that role. And maybe there's a better role that's that's more comfortable for them. And you think about the stress they have being in a role they can't fully perform. And to that point, as the company grows, it's like, hey, there's more demands. And you're right. And people need to be real with themselves. And I think that's where, right? Don't fraud. Admit your weakness and say, hey, I can do better. But you're, you're exactly right. Is to find that better match. And people that are happy, perform better. Like I said, I don't want miserable people in roles. They're not going to, they're not going to do what they need to do. So it's a great point. And when it comes to other culture things, and, and you talked before yourself about you kind of go off in the woods, you know, you got to take some time out and, and hike. Do you, what do you do at, at a sort of a corporate level? Do you ever do like sort of the, 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 the getaways or, or things like that? How do you revisit that, you know, group culture. Yeah, we don't do corporate trips, but what we even have right now is we've got a we've got a subgroup we're taking to Atlanta the the 29th of March, so two weeks. Uh, I'll I'll get my PMOs and my practice directors, and there'll be seven of us in a session for three plus days, and that's you know again part of that is I haven't sat in the room with any of these people. You know, I have practice directors in Minnesota and Atlanta and in Virginia and in Seattle and in St. Louis. Like okay, so but part of it is we need to bring that group together. And then we've got another event, you know, probably in May to bring the directors to St. Louis. And so we're, we're bringing people in because now we've got people all over the U.S. So we're all remote now where we had everybody in the building before, you know, most people are all over. But um, we're, we're working that. And then, you know, social Zoom calls. And again, even for the local team, they get we did breakfast with Santa. That was me. So I had <laughs> in December, I lined up and people could sign up and go to the pancake house here in St. Louis and have breakfast. So we're pushing the social, you know, we used to bring lunches in all the time here. And for the people that are in the office, they're, they're happy that we're doing lunches now and telling the other workers, come in, Chris is buying lunch. So we're working that. And I think that, you know, the zoom calls, are, the, the problem with that is people show up, they do business, they get off. And I think what, what we've learned is that people build those relationships over eating, drinking, and talking about stuff they do. And Zoom calls are narrow and focused and you get off and you lose that because you're not in the building together. So we're forcing that. Again, I've got a great HR manager that, again, proactively, how do we work people and, and continue to, to support the culture? So I'm sure those are the kind of things you're hearing is what are the techniques? Um, you know, because we're not going to mandate people. People have taken jobs. They don't plan on moving to St. Louis. So we're never going to yeah. have everybody in an office building. And we've got people leaving St. Louis because like, I don't have to be here anymore. I'm going to Florida. Well, that's fine. So 
anyway, new challenges, right? Is you've got the, uh, you know, try to keep people working together, you know, and, uh, and yeah. harmonizing, right? There's a lot of challenges. Yeah. Working together apart, I, I think is the, uh, a, something a, that we, we started to figure out. <laughs> working together it, apart. You're right. But it's difficult. Like you said, when, when we do, uh, you know, I recently went through the all company kickoff, you know, and so you got, you know, 700 people that are all over the place, mostly in like, you could, you could walk to each other's houses, but you're on a zoom call. And like you said, the difference was the real, the real team building doesn't happen during the zoom call. It used to happen over breakfast and for people that are going out for a smoke break and people that are right. you know having the awards banquet now the awards banquet is the last 45 minutes of the zoom call not the same thing <laughs> it's, and then the evenings you'd have like natural kind of you know i'll call it sort of coagulation of teams where people would come they would clump together and and you even get to do the thing where you you we would sort of force like when we would do team you know like scavenger hunt or whatever you would specifically say i want to build groups that are not normally together and it, it allows people to kind of like meet new faces that work at the same company that they don't normally meet and and they become friends you realize oh wow you play guitar too and oh you cycle too and and that's the stuff that really like makes that team culture exciting Oh, it does. I mean, Christmas party in December. Okay. We didn't get together. So we pushed out oranges and stuff, but I would rather have my group, but anyway, and you're right. We've done some of those, uh, what are those safe rooms where you get locked in with a group Yeah, you yeah. have to figure out how to get out. We've done those again. We've done dinner theater. So yeah, I miss all that. And I think to your point is even why we brought lunches in regularly is to get the group sitting, talking and anyway. Um, but yeah, everybody's got challenges to figure out how do they come up with programs, you know, where they're remote workers and how do you make them feel part of the, uh, part of the team, um, so that they get along because, you know, when people don't sit next to each other, they, they tend to be, you know, and they, they fight a little more and you're like, come on guys, kumbaya. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing I always tell people is like, when you, when you learn something about somebody that's personal and you develop a personal connection, it makes you behave differently in a work function because you are committed to their personality, not their function. Correct. And it's it's hard to build that when you're hiring 100% remote right now. And like, how do you suddenly find out? Like, I, I have a, I do a mentoring program. And one of the things I built, I built an app to help connect people up, partly because I was like, oh, I'm gonna see if I can do this. And the whole function of the app was was to better match people. And someone said, like, well, so I'm going to put in the thing I'm looking for. Like, I want to learn about dynamics. I want to learn about CRM. I want to learn about cloud computing, whatever. You're like, Well, that's that's actually only, like, one thing. In fact, the most important thing is, like, what do you like to do? You know, what are your favorite bands? What are your favorite books? Right. Because what I found builds the better mentoring engagements are built by better personal connections. And I'm more likely to say, like, hey, you know, Chris likes, you know, going out and, and hiking in the woods like oh that's awesome i used to live in tennessee and you're like and all of a sudden you're like oh wow this is cool so then when you say hey so how do we handle this project we're working on you care way more about working with that person because you're differently connected to them i think we need that you know and it's, and it's harder to find well we'll get there you know i i think uh 
one advantage I, I believe is that we really democratized access to work. It used to be based on geographic location, right? Like I couldn't work for turnkey if I live in New Jersey. Well, now I can't. That barrier's sure. kind of been lowered. A big deal. <clears throat> which is which is nice to to have. I, I'm excited by it, you know. And you know, even we're seeing like a lot of San Francisco folks, they call it the delocation. You know, there's some companies that literally, I forget which one of the things was Zappos that was doing thing. They actually would pay you to like, look, we'd be $25,000. Get the hell out of the Bay Area. Leave. <laughs> <laughs> and they would offer a, a fee for you to delocate because they wanted people to like, I guess it cost them like operationally to, you know, keep people and pay for transportation tax and, you know, and, and healthcare. There's probably different. Like, look, if you're in, Wisconsin, I can probably run you as an employee a little less expensive, and you'll probably be happier than if being you in are. California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting, <laughs> isn't it? The delocate. Okay. Yeah, because we used to relocate. We had yeah. people move to St. Louis, and you know, and now we had a guy move from Florida here. He's like, "I'm going back to Florida. I don't blame you. I'd like to go to Florida too." Anyway, I can't <laughs> leave. Kids are in school here, so. Uh, but it's just funny. Yeah. Well, the, and. It, I, that is the interesting thing is that as much as we say like, hey, people can go wherever, you're like, we're actually not, we're not really unattached to the thing we are. Like, I'd, I'd love this idea of complete freedom. All I need to be is near an airport. I'm like, well, but my kids are in school. I kind of need to stick it out where where I'm at. There, it's not just a matter of heading out to the to the brush, you know, and 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 finding a place that's less expensive to live. You're like, no, my kids are actually genuinely attached that's a, to their family, and you know, there's reasons people do hang on to geography. It's not, you know, if you're single, great, go anywhere you want, right? You know, yeah. if you're light, you're light, no roots, right? So, but uh, yeah, and the bigger challenge yeah. is we talk about workers. Is imagine the kids coming out of college, the young hires, and that is the bigger issue. And I think that is, you know, I've got. Because where do they get the example? And we talk about mimicking. And if that in the proximity of other people, right, you mimic. From earliest, we learn how to speak by mimicking mouth movements. So think about what you lose by not having somebody that you can watch. And the mentoring's part of that. But that's still not the same as I get to mimic and I get to watch the behavior and, and assimilate vocabulary because you get a higher density. That's, that's the other thing. But it is a challenge. And as we hire out of college, I think there is a real challenge for those kids as they go into remote positions where they don't really get to be um, indoctrinated, blueprinted, imprinted, whatever you want to call yeah. it into. I mean, I grew up in a CPA firm. I love it. What they did for me is amazing. The professionalism, the mannerisms. I mean, I mimicked and I just, I borrowed everything and made it mine. And, and again, I can't imagine not having that dense experience with this wonderful group of professionals. It just totally influenced me. But again, you think about the new world and it, it, there's challenges, like I said, and uh, not everybody's going to come back to in person because to your point about cost savings, right? I've got a building I'm in here. I'm going to rent half of it. Probably. I've got a client that's got 1400 workers and he's in St. Louis, Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, and he's got these big office buildings that are empty. He's like, Chris. And I'm like, same thing. He's not bringing these 1400 people are not coming back into the building. And guess what? The clients, the clients don't want them in their building either. So these right. 1400, they're all, and there's just one example, but that's just, again, we're going to continue to see those shifts. And, you know, some of my team thinks 22 is going to be tough because the real estate market is going to bite at some point. I think right now everybody's got long leases, so there's nothing they can do but pay for empty space. But uh, yeah, yeah we've, we're going to see a lot more change, I think, over the next two plus years that uh, a lot of people aren't anticipating. So uh 
anyway. Yeah, whenever I see a, an advertisement for something that's like a, a, a you know a REITs, you know, and anybody that's in real estate, you know, investment, and it's always like we've seen a three hundred percent, you know, year over year growth. Past performance is not indicative of future results. I'm like, boy, oh boy, is that phrase ever so important <laughs> right now? <laughs> you get a disclaimer in there that yeah, 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 yeah. Like, no, I you, get it. This is like I remembered the the vision that I can tell people that they always will recognize because they saw it on a YouTube video is like people standing on that beach in Thailand going like, hey, look, and they're pointing out because the ocean is going out, and I'm like, that's. That's what we saw the last nine months to 12 months. Like at first it took a while before you realize, oh, wow. Okay. We need to all get out of these buildings because we can't be together. Yeah. yeah. And then it became, oh boy, you know, we need to figure out how we're going to pay for these things. And then suddenly leases will expire and people can get out of that. Well, all those businesses and all those physical buildings, the wave is going to come back and like the, the okay. financial impact is going to be profound and and it will take a decade for us to really live it out it's uh i, I mean we worked in investments and and insurance companies for years i i they go through these actuarial tables and they're like you do this you do this you do this you're gonna die when you're 71 like on average like so like that's how they measure it's like all about risk management and and understanding yeah. the finance of risk <laughs> So now I'm looking at this going like, people are like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to be back to, you know, something soon. I'm like, we haven't actually seen the full effect of a lot of it. No, we have not. We have not. And even you hear the supply chain uh, impacts that are starting to come out. A lot of people aren't aware of that. But I'm hearing it in my executive group. And they're saying, they've got big problems. And yeah. a lot of people are just not aware, like even microchips. They said, oh, you know, Ford made 20% less F-1500. It's like because of the shortage of the microchips. And now... One of my guys says we can't. They can't make foam seats for cars, so they've stopped production lines. And like, really, chemicals? It's inert wow. chemicals that just are. And this is just one example of. But even in the home building industries and some of the materials, the delays have gone from. Hey, it was three weeks. Now it's twelve weeks. So there's there's a lot of other stuff that's continuing to bite that people are not aware of that hasn't really fully showed up yet. Um, so to your point, more surprises coming. And I think a lot of people just have to, you know, we'll get through it, but, uh, there are more changes and people are going to have to continue to evolve. So we definitely learn we are, we are resilient people, you know, and it's, uh, again, you know, we talked before about, you know, your cancer experience and the, no one should have to live the experience to gain the experience. Like, I wish we could impart the, the wisdom without having to live the experience Kind of like the Matrix, right? Let me just yeah. stick that back. Hey, I'm better. I actually used to imagine a USB port that I could fix you a little bit. So after uh, I went back and took a lot of psychology when I was uh, 28 after saying people don't work right. You know, cop side guy, right? What's wrong with you? Anyway, yeah. I get it. <laughs> all, all right, all right. I'm laughing. So. <laughs> but you're right. How do you give them that profound wisdom without, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Because if I tell you, you're not going to listen. Anyway, people are just funny. Well, even in your own background, like as, you know, People that purely looked at numbers, there was a point where, you know, through the 90s and 2000s, and we saw, you know, the work of like behavioral economists that, you know, started to win Nobel Prizes for economics. And they're like, they're behavioral psychologists. They're like, why is, why is Daniel Kahneman winning a, you know, and, and Amos Tversky winning Nobel Prizes for econ economy, you know, economics rather? And I'm like, they're not economists. So like, no, but guess what? there's something inside the numbers that isn't in the numbers <laughs> and it was understanding behavior. And so it was neat. What made you 
go the route to start to look, you know, and get and study psychology as so at it, that point. It was it was graduate school. So again, my undergrad is computer science and math. I spent uh, my entire career in the engineering and the math building. So I never stepped in the business building and whatever I'd been doing accounting software at a CPA firm for 10 years. I thought, yeah, I'm going to go take a financial accounting class. And so it was, it was me gapping my skills and wanting to go back. And so I took some formal accounting classes and filled in some gaps on balance sheet and income statements that I was like, all right, that makes a lot of sense. But then I did, I chased um, organizational psychs and management psych. Uh, and I needed, I needed the people side that I didn't get my undergrad and I took the business classes. And I think that was, that just filled in for me because, you know, a lot of, a lot of owners, they grow up, you're an engineer, you grow up and you're sitting in the chair. You're like, ah, I don't know how to do this job. I've never studied that. And you know, you end up short. Well, I'm the guy that I self-assess and I do that to my workers. Like, wait, I need to fill in. You need this knowledge so that you can make those decisions. And that was it. It was just it, but it, it was, um, you know, I didn't, it was a 66 hour master's program and management information says, if I didn't finish it, I just wanted, I needed this, 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 this. And I'm like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> and I went and I went on my way. And obviously I had enough to, to, to start the business and run the business. And, uh, but that was it. It was just me cherry picking where I had gaps. And, you know, because of my undergrad, I could take some advanced comp sci curriculum, which I liked, you know, where I learned more about algorithms for business apps, um, as opposed to doing scientific uh, cubic spline algorithms. So it's like, that's a whole different deal. But uh, anyway. Yeah. I think we need, we need that. <laughs> I wish there was a like just enough organizational psychology. Like there's like just enough project management courses and just enough, you know, accounting courses, like to give people enough understanding of it to then relate to the people that do that. And one thing I wish there was more of is like understanding behavior and, and organizational psychology, like human resources stuff. The hard part about, you know, human resources as a function <coughs> It's it's as much uh, a legal and and like benefits Absolutely. thing as it is a real organizational development, which is, you know, unfortunately, human resources. You 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 look at the words. It's, it's human resources. Like, how do we manage these resources and and yep. empower? You know, it's not as much about empowerment as about legal protection of. <laughs> well, it's a variety of things, but I think even the the people focus on how do we bring educational programs that help augment their skill sets because we know that we gave all of our directors project management classes. Let's continuing to give them more because to your point, people have gaps in their academic educations, and unless they bump into somebody in life, they don't get that experience. And even so, they may only get twenty percent of what they need to know. It's like, oh, I I did PM. We didn't see the whole picture. So yeah. we're proactively doing that. But again, people don't always drive themselves to uh, to pursue knowledge. And again, as you talk about human capital management, that's a whole different field because there is a lot of complexity and there's legal requirements. And yeah, I, I rely on somebody else to kind of do the interpretation to make sure that we're ahead of the curve. So. And one thing before we finish up, Chris, and thank you for this. It's been a, a really good sort no, of I appreciate reaching it. chat. Uh, you talked about, you know, people coming out of college today and, you know, you and I, we shared some fun stories of the, you know, 80s and 90s. And it's it's interesting because I believe my behavior today is much defined by living through change in life through these decades. So if somebody comes out of college today and they haven't experienced a couple of decades in, you know, how do you think that they've like, how will their behavior and their experience be coming into the business world now when they've got broad access to cloud and software and social media and phones and all this stuff? You know, we we grew up in, like you said, luggables and, and car, you know, like phone 
that was in a bag. <laughs> that yeah. It was like a dollar a minute to talk on it, stuff like that. It's, I'm curious what your thought is on if someone's coming out of school today, how do we give them the appreciation for, you know, what they've already got? Yeah. You know, that's hard because, you know, and depending on their experience and where do they land in their first job, you know, do they develop the, the disciplines? Um, but again, those experiences are so different and the expectations are different too, you know, on how people work and how much they should work and how, where they should work from. So, you know, and that's a tough one. And I think, again, it's depending on your first, where do you land and what's the structure that's taught to you? You know, again, there are firms that have training and onboarding methodologies where they really take you out of school and it's just the beginning of learning and they groom you and they give you that. And then, you know what, you've got some direction going forward. But if you get a first bad experience, it's like, oh, did you learn anything? And, and again, what what expectations or perceptions of what work life should be? I've got people that don't want to work a lot of, I mean, again, they don't work for me, but I have examples where they don't really want to work as much. And so there's a lot of challenges. And again, is it, are you in an office where you get structure and you get indoctrinated and you're good going forward? I still job of that. But I think if depending on where they land, that's going to be my my perspective is do they get that good direction where they can carry that forward and evolve with it? Like I said, I landed in a great place. Not everybody gets most engineers don't become part of a public accounting firm where you really learn about that whole other side of of professional services culture. Um so yeah. again I still think experiences are going to drive that outcome. Yeah, I hope that people throw themselves into that stuff. That's I, I think truly is the the best way that I learned how to be in my team was to go outside of my team like working in a large firm i was i would talk to the network team and talk to the storage team talk to the you know insurance sales people and really get infused in how they did things and then it really colored how i did things in my own little micro team and then when it came time for advancement well understanding the business was more important than understanding the technology in the end true true our technology changes again you're, you're correct. The, the fundamentals of these different organizations and the, and the way they do business are, are endure, frankly. So, well, uh, this has been, you know, it's good lessons for everybody. And Chris, I, I, I'm, in, I'm happy. I'm going to come out of here. I'm feeling, feeling bloody good about my day <laughs> right good. now. Uh, you're, you're a pleasure to, to share time with Chris and appreciate and, uh, the opportunity. Like I said, so, uh, and if folks want to get a hold of you and they want to reach out, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, the easiest way is, is the website, turnkeytech.com, T-U-R-N-K-E-Y-T-E-C.com. Again, you land on that page. There's live chat. Just say, hey, I want to talk to Chris. I want to talk about solutioning. Um, you can get to me pretty easy. There's submit forms. You could, They all come to me, so I see everything. But that's the easiest way to find us. Go to the website and uh, love to have a conversation with anybody that's looking at uh, changing business applications or just wants to talk about vision. So Excellent. thank you. Excellent. Thanks very much. Appreciate the opportunity.